1890, the German Chemical Society organised an elaborate celebration to mark the 25th anniversary of the publication of a paper by Auguste Kekulé on the structure of the organic compound benzene. In his speech, Kekulé recalled a dream in which he had seen an Ouroboros, a serpent swallowing its own tail, which caused him to realise that the carbon atoms must be arranged in a ring. Benzene continues to fascinate scientists. As Claire Murray writes in the journal Nature Chemistry, it does things no molecule should do with electrons. There is something rather magical about benzene. What brand of magic does benzene perform? A recognised carcinogen used in medicine? A hydrocarbon found in crude oil? That unforgettable smell you get at a petrol station? That is benzene. The aroma of millions of years of decomposition about to be transmuted into a suffocating atmospheric shroud. In this paper, I want to explore the idea that in making a connection between the Ouroboros and benzene, Kekule opens a connection with more significance and contemporary relevance than he could have realised. A connection between alchemy and apocalypse, between transmutation and our quest for survival. In European cultures, alchemy has been marginalised since the 18th century, written off as a failed attempt at proto-chemistry. This Enlightenment viewpoint evaluates alchemy in terms of a rigorously secularised scientific practice where material manipulation is aimed at utility. The symbols of this practice, the microscope, the periodic table, the molecule, point to a determination of properties, a notion which, as Catherine Yusuf observes, is inextricable from the economics of property. Indeed, as Bruno Latour has shown, it is possible to conceptualise a modern scientific practice in political theological terms and so resituate it from a transcendent plane of immutable knowledge into the messy complex of imminent earth life, in which metals, polymers, proteins or forces cannot be separated from ownership, architecture, law enforcement or desire. It is with this perspective that I come to alchemy. Interest in esotericism has often performed an epistemology which parodies modern scientific practice, insisting on occult knowledge as an alternative form of uh, transcendent immutability. A contest, but one that doesn't redraw the rules. My interest, by contrast, is to take alchemy every bit as seriously as Latour takes modern science as an imminent practice of knowledge-making with all its complex, invested manifestations of nature culture. In this paper, I aim to consider an alchemical notion of time as a way to engage the material religion, to the extent it can be described that way, of Extinction Rebellion. Through this, I hope to tentatively suggest how alchemical imagination might offer a different frame for research on climate activist movements. Beginning, probably, in the priestly cult of Egypt, the term alchemy is Arabic and its major developments are Taoist China, the Hindu South Asian subcontinent, Buddhist Tibet, 
uh, and Greek, later Christian Europe, forged through trading relationships on what would later become known as the Silk Road. It could well be claimed that alchemy is the world's first truly global religion. As a result, the history of alchemy is vast, it's diverse, and so the following is only a very brief sketch of some common themes. As an historical approach, I am sceptical of trans-historical claims to universality. Rather than trace a history of alchemy, my aim is to consider alchemy as a symbolic universe with specific material practices, uh, in which I'm drawing uh, primarily from my reading of the work of Aaron Cheek. The most common symbol of the alchemists is the Ouroboros, the snake in Western tradition or dragon in the Eastern that eats its own tail. Like all symbols, it's multivalent. However, it's generally described as a sign for the unity of all matter. This unity is not simplistic, however. The Ouroboros is not an unbroken ring. There is a movement away and a movement towards. One part is perennially consumed, metabolized. In this sense, the Ouroboros is a symbol of the cycle of life and death, the continual turning of the seasons, the inseparability of constancy and change. As a ritual practice to participate in these cycles, alchemy is concerned with the quest for gold or an elixir as a symbol of immortality. There are tales from Egypt to China to Europe of powerful princes who lost their lives in a desperate hunt for alchemical gold and eternal glory. But these stories parody the practice. These princes, like our contemporary extractivist obsessions, valued ends over means, the goal over the process. Their quest for gold was about gaining greater power and permanence. But I suggest that alchemical writing does not betray an obsession with ends. It is instead about the perennial, the never-ending. The quest for gold is about the means, the quest itself. The meaning is in the life that endures. The gold is not for another life after the death at the end of this one. It is for the life that emerges from this death that we are in. That is why the other great symbol of the alchemists is the phoenix, and why the practices of alchemy inevitably involve fire. Just as gold is for the life that emerges from this death, so fire is for the death that must take place in this life. Death and life are locked in a cycle, the yin and yang of the Tao, the sun and its rebirth in Egypt. There is no life without death, and no death without life, and fire is their universal mediator. Now, in order to sketch an alchemical conception of time, I want to divert briefly to Bruno Latour. In his essay, We Have Never Been Modern, Latour, a leading French philosopher and anthropologist of science, deconstructs modern epistemology. In order to produce our knowledge, he asserts, humans have attended to two practices. The first is a work of translation by which hybrids are both created and described. Latour takes pretty much everything into view in his account of the production of a hybrid. 
knowledge surrounding missile guidance systems. For example, takes in aerodynamics, ballistics, ethics, politics, newscasting and secrecy, geography, history. No credible account of the, of the phenomenon could ignore any one of those fields of knowledge. Knowledge must attend to its own hybrid nature, achieved through a work of translation between these inevitably networked fields of study. However, in order to speed up and clarify aspects of this production of complex knowledge, we also attend to a work of purification. In this way, we produce and consider discrete fields of knowledge before then engaging in the work of translation by which hybrid knowledge is produced. The fantasy of the modern Fulatur is in the valorization of a purification that takes place between two particular meta-categories of knowledge, nature and society, and in the separation of that purification from, via a disavowal of, hybrid knowledge. Missile guidance systems must therefore become either science or politics. It must have a singular category. If it is science, then knowledge exists in a factual domain beyond politics. If it is politics, well, then we have politicised science. While the production of complex hybrids continues anyway, the modern imagination insists on pushing nature and society further and further apart, producing ever larger, more complex and more dangerous disavowed translations. Now, this all matters if the modern conceit unmasked by Latour is, as he argues, responsible for our alienation from the earth. The obsession with ends over means, which defines capitalist profiteering and permits rampant extractivism, derives from the break between nature and society and the disavowal of their mediation. Only when a purification occurs sufficient to imagine nature as something else can human society consume the Earth's resources so relentlessly. However, the way forward from here, according to Latour, is firstly to acknowledge that we have never actually been modern. Since we have been working with hybrids all along, even though we pretended we weren't, we are always working with objects woven from naturally occurring elements, pressed into service by human ingenuity. The idea that our political systems could survive without jet engines or microchips or oxygen or trees or cattle is denying the non-human participants in our complex social existence. There is no objective fact that is not produced through human language and agency and no societies without a quote to uh, the objects that have been serving as their ballast since time immemorial. We are always and continually hybridizing like experimental non-modern mixers. Perhaps we have always been alchemists. We just didn't know it. Not quite. In acknowledging that we have never been modern, we must, argues Latour, renounce our practice of enforcing epochal breaks in time. The fantasy of the modern was only possible by narrating a story in which the scientific revolution was a fundamental disjuncture in history. Only by imagining that we had broken, irrevocably broken, with a past to which we could never return, were we able to develop 
and epistemology of such radical distinction from all previous eras of human knowledge. The modern theory of change is a theory of radical separation. The non-modern requires the presence of the past. Not the representation of the past, but the actual encounter with the past which still lives. As Latour says, it is a long way from a provocative quotation extracted out of a truly finished past to a reprise, repetition or revisiting of a past that has never disappeared. What Latour suggests throughout but doesn't properly develop is an account of time as non-linear. He ends his essay with a non-modern manifesto for the unmasking of the continual processes of hybridization, warning that, quote, every new call to revolution, every epistemological break will be deemed dangerous. However, it is precisely the revolution in the sense of turning inherent in a cyclical conception of time that offers a genuine encounter with a still living past and the possibility of epistemological continuity. Rather than outlawing revolutions, I suggest we must replot them. To do this, I contend, requires an alchemical philosophy of change. The cycle of life and death central to alchemy, symbolized by the Ouroboros, the phoenix, and the quest for gold, is embodied in the idea of transmutation. In the metallurgical practice of alchemy, lead does not uh, just turn into gold via a magic spell. The rarer metal must be produced from within the shell of the base metal. The essence of silver is within lead, but must be produced from it. Likewise, the essence of gold is then found within that silver. The status of an object in alchemy is radically unstable. Not destabilized, for that would perpetuate the fantasy of an original stability. It is inherently originally unstable. And from that instability, the alchemist produces eternal life. From the perspective of Latour's analysis, however, this transmutation is also a translation. It is a mediated change that doesn't just move from A to B, but attends to the complex lines that draw the meanings of lead through to gold, meanings that are neither wholly natural or social, scientific or political, but all of these at once. So I want to suggest that the instability of the object in alchemy is directly related to the alchemical concept of time. Our modern notions of temporality are dominated by advances in thermodynamics. In a closed system, entropy results in the irreversible transfer of heat energy. It is this which fundamentally separates past and future. However, as the scientific study of entropy has developed, so the notion of the arrow of time has been problematized. While it is true that in a closed system, everything will slowly fall apart, eventually slumping to a slow and stagnant rest. In an open system, in other words, in a system that is not in a state of equilibrium, entropy sometimes works against contrary gradients, thereby building, not dissembling form. Many biological processes, for example, utilize entropy 
as the most efficient way to transfer energy across gradients, dissipating certain forms in order to maintain others. Indeed, given our theme, it's worth noting that simply by being here, living and breathing, we are each performing perennial transmutation. The issue for entropy and time is one of scale. We could all sit quietly now, close our eyes and breathe slowly for five minutes. When we opened our eyes, this would all look the same, as long as no one took the chance to leave. We would all still be here. We would not noticeably have aged. It would appear that nothing had changed. In that sense, then, time will feel like it has slowed or even paused for a moment. Yet inside each of our bodies, an extraordinary series of destructions and creations will have occurred. Histories will have been made and erased. The past will repeat itself, not as a ghost, but as a product, like a material deja vu. You can imagine a cell nucleus thinking, I swear I just synthesized that protein. <laughs> In this example, we are each apparently stable objects, yet the appearance of stability masks the continual performance of repeated acts of radical instability. This is where we return to Kekule and the structure of benzene. In a benzene molecule, the bonds between the carbon atoms are radically unstable, continually breaking and reforming across different relations, yet the benzene molecule persists. The Ouroboros is not just a way to think of benzene because it is circular. The Ouroboros is perpetually destroyed and remade. An alchemical notion of time can recycle materials in a cyclical movement, producing an unstable object with the appearance of stability at a certain scale. So as the final part of this paper, I want to explore apocalypse in alchemical terms by considering the case of Extinction Rebellion, the global protest movement which performs acts of civil disobedience in the shadow of a climate and ecological emergency. XR, as it is known, has often been described in religious terms, both by those inside the movement and outside it, although scholarly analysis of this phenomenon is limited. XR has two primary practices. Public nonviolent protest, usually combining civil disruption with performance art, and local XR group meetings in which, alongside the work of planning logistics, participants are encouraged to collectively process the impact of what is described as the climate and ecological emergency. This impact is considered practically, but there is a clear collective understanding that it is a profoundly spiritual threat though the precise contours of spirituality might be expressed in myriad ways. In this sense, XR echoes past protest movements whose activist energy was incubated and sustained by religious language, ritual and a deep community solidarity. If XR can be understood in religious terms, then it is unquestionably dominated by a temporal horizon a coming apocalypse which demands present action. It follows long-standing prophetic traditions which call time on the present order, insisting, in XR's case, 
on a new politics of radical democracy typified by the Citizens' Assembly, along with the end of extractive capitalism and the pursuit of growth that drives it. What makes XR different in its demands, however, is the source of its authority. Rather than invoking God or some other occult power, XR invokes a publicly available body of peer-reviewed scientific data which demonstrate to a high degree of confidence the statistical range of probabilities shaping our collective future. This is captured in the XR logo. The X for extinction forms an hourglass to show that time is running out, embedded within the circle of the Earth. It is intended as a symbol of existential apocalypse. In this way, Extinction Rebellion also ties material transmutation to a notion of time. The climate emergency is very explicitly a situation in which the combustion of hydrocarbons, including benzene, and the destruction of carbon sequestering species leads to a temporal threshold of no return. Although the antecedents of XR have long histories in the climate protest more generally, XR specifically is a response to the 2018 IPCC report, which specified 2030 as the threshold year uh, by which a global temperature rise of more than 1.5 degrees Celsius would tip the planet into an irreversible future. The emergency is that a specific time horizon looms, which threatens a transgressive transmutation. However, in describing the XR logo as a symbol of existential apocalypse, a question is raised about the nature of apocalypse. It's a well-rehearsed claim that the popular meaning of apocalypse, as something like the end of the world, masks the more nuanced history of the term as an unveiling or as a revelation. And there is no question that Extinction Rebellion works productively with this double concept in the sense that the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold signifies both the end of the world as we know it and the productive revelation of new forms of social, economic and political organisation which can provide a sustainable future. What is not so readily considered in discussions of apocalypse, however, is the material dynamic of an unveiling, especially as it relates to non-linear temporality. And this is where I suggest an alchemical imagery, uh, sorry, imaginary, can offer an approach to apocalypse uh, and by extension to research on XR. So then what is the alchemy of apocalypse? It is, I suggest, the unveiling of recycled time. Recycled time is a material description of repetition of the entropic work that both destroys and sustains form. Rather than beginning or end, recycled time is cyclical, but not simply a circle. As the Ouroboros eats its tail, as the phoenix combusts, recycled time involves destruction. And yet as the Ouroboros grows from its self-consumption and the phoenix rises from its ashes, so recycled time remakes the past from the ruins of its future. Life grows from this death that we are in. 
It seems to me that one of the challenges for Extinction Rebellion is a conflicted notion of temporality. On the one hand, following the IPCC reports, XR conceives of temporal thresholds as if time was linear. On the other, XR imagines a cyclical temporality in its focus on regeneration as an integrated metaphor for ecological and spiritual activist practice. Conceptualizing apocalypse as the unveiling of recycled time provides a way to retain the catastrophe invoked by temperature, temperature thresholds, but within a cyclical temporality. Global temperature rises do spell death, but death is not antithetical to life. It is integral. Only by allowing death to unveil a future can we retain a past. Death must be metabolized in unstable matter for life to persist. Extinction Rebellion performs a collective response to the question, what should we do when faced with the end of the world? I have suggested that within an alchemical imagination, the end is not in the future, but in the present. This is a tentative insight, which is offered as an exploratory conceptual framework for further research into the material practice of Extinction Rebellion for which I think the concept of material religion allows for a different kind of investigation than, for example, activist studies. Uh, more broadly, I hope this exploration of alchemy and time might provide some new possibilities for conceiving of the materiality of apocalypse. Thank you.